The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. This morning's scripture reading comes from Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul wrote, I'm eager to come to you. I have a passion within me to tell you about Jesus Christ. Paul said, that is my passion, that is my overarching desire, that is that which I am most eager for, is to come to you, not to hang out in Rome, not to go on the tour bus and be around, not to uh, enjoy some uh, wonderful food and drink, but I want to come to Rome to tell you about Jesus Christ. I'm eager. It, it is something uh, that is an impulse, as it were, within me. It drives me. It motivates me. It's something about who I am that says this, I want to tell you about Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says, I'm eager to tell you. I'm eager to come to you uh, and to do this. I'm eager to come and share with you this good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it would behoove us then to ask Paul, why are you so excited about this? Why are you so eager for this? And Paul says, because this gospel, this gospel I know is the power of God to change lives. It is the only power in all of the world that can take a dead, lost heart that is in bondage to sin and death and transform it into a new heart, a living heart, that is a heart that beats for God, for Christ, and in that it has eternal life in Him, and it is only through the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is a powerful message. It is not something to be trifled with. It is not something uh, to be handled 
lightly. But it is a powerful and dynamic message. And I want to tell you about it because I know that you need to hear it. Who would need to hear the message of the gospel, Paul would think? Well, those who are in desperate need of it. Those who are dying. Those who haven't heard it yet. Those who may have heard it but have begun to fade away. Who need to be strengthened by it. Those who are under assault within Rome. Uh, those who are, are being, as it were, becoming weary and weak. Paul says, I want to come to you. I want to come to you and I want to encourage you by the power of this gospel. This gospel which says to you this, cheer up. You're worse than you want to think that you are. Chapters 1 and 2. Cheer up. Your heart is more deceitful than you think that it is. Cheer up. You are really messed up and lost. So cheer up. Then he says this, cheer up. For in Christ Jesus you are more loved and accepted than you ever dared dream or hope or imagine. Simultaneously with a heart that's like that. Paul said, I come because I believe this gospel is the only truth in all the world that as Blaise Pascal uh, said, uh, speaks of the wretchedness of man and the greatness of man, both in truth and brings them together. And says this, you are more lost than you wanted to ever think that you were. You're worse than you believe that you are. But in Christ, you're more loved than you ever dared dream. And it's an orphan's wildest dream. He says, this is the gospel that I want to bring to you. This is the gospel that transforms life. That breaks bondages. That comes in and it takes people who are of different races. Different backgrounds, Jew and Gentile, who were historically haters of one another. Their cultures didn't like one another. They had nothing in common, nothing. And it brings them together and says that through this powerful gospel, you can now become one family. It takes slaves and free, wealthy and poor, educated and uneducated men and women, children and adults, and brings them together by the power of this gospel and unifies them so much so that that's their true family. Paul says, this is the message I want to teach to you. Paul says, I want to come to you. I'm eager to come to you in the power of this gospel because I know that you are Christians who are standing within a world and within a culture that is continually becoming more and more hostile towards you. That you are being, uh, that, your, that your liberty, that your freedom, that your position is being attacked within the culture. And for some of you, you're losing your way and you need to be encouraged. I am eager to come to you and tell you this. But the gospel isn't just for the lost person who needs to come to faith. The gospel just isn't the A, B, and C of the Christian life of how you are saved. It is also the X, Y, and Z of how you were perfected. He would say of his friend and fellow minister Peter, Peter says, do you want to be more like Christ? Do you want to see these attributes of, of Christ grow in your life? Well, here's what you need to do. You need to remember that you were washed in the blood of Jesus Christ and you were saved by him. He says it's the application of the gospel to your heart, not by your wife, not by harder work. But it's saying this, that I believe these things to be true, and therefore I'm going to live out of those truths. Paul's saying, I am so eager to come to you and to teach you those things. I'm eager to come and to teach you because there's been some confusion within the church. There's confusion about who are God's chosen people. And it's led to mistakes. It's led to disunity within the church. And I am eager to come to you in the power of this gospel 
so that you can be brought back together as one body. I'm eager to come to you because there's gossiping within the church and there's factions within the church. That there are those within the church who think too highly of themselves and others within the church who think too lowly of themselves. And I want to come with this gospel. I'm eager to come to you with this gospel and establish you in it. I think what Paul is saying is this. I want to come and I want to preach this gospel to you. Because I want you to know more than anything else in all the world who you are in Christ. Your identity. I want you to understand fully what has happened, the transaction of the gospel, this, this justification, this big word that we learned and we talked about, that through Christ's work on the cross, through his death and his resurrection, through the perfection of his life, through his ascension into heaven. Now God, the righteous judge, says through the power of the Holy Spirit, okay, you who now believe by faith through grace in my son, I'm going to give you his perfection. I'm going to impute it, another big theological word. I'm going to impute it. I'm going to give it to you. It's now yours. It is credited on your account. And so you stand in the midst of this incredible transaction that you now stand and you say, I am totally free of the charges of sin against me. That Christ has paid the penalty of those sins. And that now I am the very righteousness of God the Father. And this God, this incredible God, who is the God who has now justified me, is also the God who's adopted me. That the judge has become my father. How awesome is that? I have this picture, it's a great picture of John F. Kennedy uh, in the Oval Office and his son under the, under the desk. That's us, the most powerful person in all the world. And his son is saying, yeah, but he's my dad. I get to crawl around his desk. And our father in heaven says, I'm the king. But you get to come around the throne. I'm the judge in the courtroom. But you get to come in and I get to look at you and say, you're my son. And I delight in you. And now I'm going to perfect you. I'm not going to leave you as you are. I, I'm not going to just let you stay uh, sort of there. But I'm going to move. And I'm going to change you through the power of the Spirit. And you are going to become fully like Christ in your life. That now other big deal out of the word sanctification. You're going to become more and more like Christ. Until one day we learn that we're going to be glorified in Him. One day when Christ returns. All things will be made new. Is that good news? I don't know about you, but I would be pretty good time for him to return now. Or now. Maybe now. The church used to say this, Maranatha. Come, Lord, come. That's what it means. They're like, come, Lord, now. Now would be a great time for you to come and to finish off this work, to make all things new, that there would be no more groaning under sin and death. That all of creation which groans now because of the fall won't groan anymore. And that we who groan under sin and death, we who have lost loved ones, we who have experienced cancer in our bodies, we who have experienced the effect of the fall and the breakdowns of our families, who have seen within a culture and a world the breakdown of lives, that we would look and be able to go, oh, but when the king returns, all of everything in his presence flourishes and has shalom. And Paul says, I want to come and I want to encourage you in those things. I want you to know the truth of the gospel. 
in chapters 1 through 11. I want you to study theology. That word. Study theology. Know your doctrine. You may not consider yourself Presbyterian, but you're in a Presbyterian church, so I'll consider you that. Your heritage is this within the Presbyterian church. The Presbyterians were called for so many centuries people of the book. They knew the word. They studied and knew their doctrine. They knew these great, profound theological truths and what they learned from these incredible doctrines of justification and election and sovereignty of God and God's calling us to himself and that we respond by faith in that. It led us to be the most humble of individuals. Because if salvation has nothing to do with me, that all I bring is my deadness. And it's God who has to do the work of salvation within my heart. Then I'm the most humble and the most hopeful person ever. Because here's what I think. I'm so humble that God would change my life. That he would choose me. That he would love me based on nothing that he saw within me. And he would change me like that. And I'm humble. And I approach others with great humility. Not with pride and arrogance. But with a profound humility that leads me to worship. But I'm also the most hopeful because if God can change me, guess who else he can change? Anyone. Because I'm not better than anyone. And Paul would say, oh, I'm actually the chief among sinners. When I consider my own heart, oh. And if he can change me, then he can change you and the person you're thinking of in your mind right now who has no hope of heaven. He can change him that fast. Because it's up to God, not you. And you know what that frees you to do, by the way, as an aside? It frees you to be a really good neighbor and a really good person to be within a park. Because your neighbors are not projects for you. They're not notches for you to put on your evangelism belt and say, hey, you got another one in the kingdom today. But you are an excellent and wonderful neighbor who loves genuinely, who turns your house into a safe place for people to come with the brokenness of their lives. And they come into your home and around your family and they see the beauty and, and they savor the smell of life from Christ in your midst. And you pray regularly for them that they would come to faith. And I think John and Sarah are wonderful and awesome people. But you know what? They're limited. They couldn't change that woman's heart. But God did. Amen. And now he's working on her husband. Yeah. That's awesome. You may not know how big of a thing it is for that husband to turn and say, okay, you can be publicly baptized. But it's massive. And my prayer and my hope is this, that through the conversion and the public profession of faith and baptism of his wife, his life will be forever changed. And through his life being forever changed, the family's life is going to be forever changed. Generations can be changed and entire cultures can be changed because someone went to a park. Go to the park today. For Jesus. Paul would say, I want you to see these things. I'm eager to come to you. And to tell you these things. And I'm eager to tell you this. That all of these truths lead you. Chapter 12 verse 1. Therefore now present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable unto God. Live in light of the reality of who God is. And of who you are in him. There's implication to our lives by what we believe. What we say we believe affects us. It has to. And if it doesn't affect your life, if there's not fruit being born out in your life, I would challenge you on this. I have to question what your faith assumptions then are. I have to. That's what Paul would do. 
It's like, I don't know. The last time I checked apple trees, they bore apples. And the way that you tell it's an apple tree is it's got apples. And if it's got oranges on it, what kind of tree do you have? No, you have an apple tree. Because the orange tree said, I'm an apple tree. There's a lot of folks in the church who say that. No, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. Well, I don't see any fruit in your life. I don't see anything born out in your life. Oh, that's silly. I'm a Christian. I go to church. I'm a Christian. Paul would say, I'm eager to come to you because I want to warn you and I want to also comfort you. To warn you is to be careful. Be careful. Don't believe in a false hope. And I want you to recognize this. There's got to be fruit that's born out in your life. Chapters 12, 14, 15, and 16, and 13. That it goes. That it moves. Paul says, I want to encourage you. I'm eager to tell you about these things. And I'm eager to tell you these things. Because at the very end of it all, he breaks into song and doxology. He says, now to him who is able. He said, folks, at the end of the day, the conclusion of it all is the glory of God. And so God is going to be glorified in your life one way or the other. He is going to be glorified in your life by his mercy, or he will be glorified in your life by his justice. Which is it going to be, is what Paul would be saying. Will you be a trophy of his grace and his mercy through the justice that was poured out on Christ? Or are you going to be an object of that justice poured out on yourself to his glory of being a righteous judge? Paul says there is a difference in those two things. And so Paul has written and is encouraging us even now by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he says, I want to encourage you in these things. And then Paul makes a statement, and I'm going to end with it in this way. We're kind of fired up. I'm fired up. I'm excited. Going, yeah, this is good. We're going to go out of this place and people going, and we're going to see great things happen and lives are going to be transformed. And this is going to be great because what people are saying is they've been called to don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And this is great. And we're going to be awesome. And then what's going to happen Monday and Tuesday is life's going to, for some, fall right back into the way it always is. And you're going to pull back. You know the reason that you're going to pull back? Because at the very deep, very deep core, you're ashamed of Jesus Christ. And you're ashamed of being associated with him. Because that's what Paul said. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And what he was highlighting there was this. There's an incredible power within shame. There's an incredible power that leads the individual to a contempt of themselves and a contempt of who they are that pulls them back and says, I am not going to stand for Christ because you have a culture around us that says this. It says, shame on you. Shame on you for thinking you know truth. Shame on you for saying that there is one God and that he gets to set everything in motion. Shame on you for not thinking that the scientific method is the best method. Shame on you for thinking that all things were created out of nothing. Shame on you for thinking that marriage is between one man and one woman in a heterosexual monogamous relationship. Shame on you. Shame on you for thinking abortion is wrong. Shame on you for thinking that there's only one way to heaven through Jesus Christ. Shame on you. Shame on you for not experimenting with your sexuality. Shame on you, young people, for not being cool and fun enough and drinking and doing drugs. Shame on you. Shame on you for standing for Jesus Christ. Isn't that what the culture says? 
It shames us. It speaks. You see, shame is external. Shame is spoken to us. It's an external thing. Christ was shamed. They spoke those same things to you. Who do you think you are? You're a, you're a Galilean. They picked on his race, his people, his hometown. You're uneducated. Shame on you. You think you're the son of God. Shame on you. You would hang out with lepers and prostitutes and people who were against the system. Shame on you. And when he was on the cross, shame on you. If you're the God of all Israel, come down off that cross. You see, he was shamed, but he wasn't ashamed. Because, you see, being ashamed takes those external things and internalizes them. And it says, that's right. I do, that's what I believe about myself. That I am this, and I am that. Shame on you, Bill McFetchin, that you think that you can stand up and preach when I know your past. Had a dad want to say that to me. I knew you, Bill McCutcheon, in high school and college, and now you're going to stand up and preach the gospel. Shame on you. Shame on you who's had these things in your life. Shame on you that you think you can stand up and you can preach when you haven't been a perfect husband, you haven't been a perfect father, and your family's got issues, and you've got stuff going on. Shame on you. And you know what a shame does with that? It says you're right. I can't do this. And I pull back. And I believe it, and it becomes a self-contempt. And I hate myself. And I don't want to be associated with this one Christ, because if I'm associated with Christ, that means that I'm going to be pulled out, and I'm going to have to stand with him, and I'm going to have to take on shame just like he was. And I'm going to have to experience a contempt from other people just like he did. And I'm not sure that I want to do that, because they're right about me. Dan Allender, the great... Christian counselor and writer and teacher said in my own life and in my clinical work I have found that self-contempt to be to be like an impenetrable cloak that people wear. The effect of kind words, of compliments, of genuine care, or excellent therapeutic work are all muted and even repelled by contempt. However, as fitting as the imagery of a cloak is, I believe there is much more to contempt. I see contempt as an active, degenerative, language presence within us that seeks to nullify goodness. Contempt is not something that we dabble in and then put down. It is a consuming entity that seeks to blot out our sense of the goodness of God and cut us off from future encounters with, the good, with that goodness. Self-contempt intertwines itself masterfully with the data of our story. Who do you think you are standing for Christ? You had an abortion when you were young. Who do you think you are for Christ? You're divorced. Who do you think you are not able to have children? Who do you think that you are that you were bankrupt? Who do you think that you are that you used to be this and you used to be that? Who do you think you are? That's what the culture and that's what the evil one says to us. And Paul is saying this. Folks, don't be ashamed of who you are. Because the God of the universe is not ashamed of you. That the God of the universe knows every single shaming statement about you and can say, yep, true, and amen. But my son came for him or her. And it is the power of God for salvation to the Jew person, to the Greek. 
Because in it, you become the very righteousness of God. Shame is incredibly powerful, and it keeps you trapped, and some of you are caught there. And some of you are terrified to step out and to be identified with Christ because you know that it's going to come. And Paul would say, please don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed because you need to see the beauty and the glory of Christ. I wish I could go to our young people, and I wish I could look back at my own life and go, Bill McCutcheon, 14-year-old Bill McCutcheon, 15-year-old Bill McCutcheon, don't be ashamed of who you are in Christ. Let your profession ring out in the public arena. Don't just be good on Sunday, but live it out consistent. Wouldn't it be awesome? And that's why I'm so excited about our children's ministries and our student ministries. Hoping to create a culture in which young people can stand and say this, it is not a shameful thing to stand for Jesus Christ. It's the most honoring thing, actually. Because I'm going to enter into my marriage without some of the scars that some of you are going to enter into. I'm going to be able to present myself to my wife or to my husband without the addictions that some of you are entering into. Because I've stood and I'm fighting these battles together with other brothers and sisters. And I'm not the only crazy one who's out here. I can look around and there's a lot of other crazy ones. And that's why I'm excited about our discipleship ministries of men and women within the church. Because guess who those young people need to look to to see that it's okay to stand for Christ within the culture? Us. Yes. Parents. You took a vow a couple of weeks ago with Will Wedgworth, and you said, we vow as a church to live in a way that shows him the gospel is real. And so Paul would say to us, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of who you are in Christ, of what Christ has done for you. For it is the thing that brings honor, not shame. It brings healing, not self-contempt in those things. We can keep going. <laughs> Paul would say this, and I'll end here. And I'll invite the team to come on up. I imagine that if Christ could verbally speak, one of the things that he would say, not in addition to his word, not heresy, would say this. Don't be ashamed of me, because I'm never ashamed. I was willing to go to a cross for you. I'm seated in heaven for you. I'm coming back one day for you. And in that statement, and in the statements of the Father that speak to you, you have more honor and dignity than you ever could have dared dream or imagine. You have more strength and power within you because the third person of the Trinity resides in you now, who is equal with God the Father and equal with God the Son in glory and in power. And he is in you. And so Paul, in conclusion to all of this, would say, folks, don't ever be ashamed. Don't ever be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power that changed your life. And it is the power that can change every life. And your God is for you and not against you.